Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Ephroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. 
for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have Jesus or may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour him like and honour men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Carl. Let's, uh, let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask as we come to your word that you would speak to us, that you would uh, strengthen us by your spirit, that we might live lives worthy of the gospel, that we might know the gospel so deeply, so profoundly, that that would shape our lives uh, and the way that we live for you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there's a great line uh, in the film uh, Hot Shots, Two, uh, where there's a guy on a plane, he's reading a book, uh, and someone says to him, what are you reading? He says, oh, great expectations. And what did you think of it? Oh, it wasn't all I'd hoped for. It's one of those great moments in, uh, in film. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Great Expectations, but uh, it's not about, uh, you know, whether you'll have a, enjoy reading it uh, or not. It's about uh, a main, the main character, Pip, who is a uh, poor orphan boy. He lives with his sister uh, and her husband. And one day, Pip receives a generous living from an anonymous benefactor. That is, someone decides to pay him hundreds of pounds every year in order to learn to be a gentleman and to live as a gentleman. Uh, But it turns out that it takes more than a decent income to make somebody a gentleman. Uh, Pip lives a dissolute life. He becomes embarrassed by the poverty of his kind brother-in-law who taught him uh, a trade. He racks up debts, he becomes estranged from the woman that he loves Uh, and when his generous benefactor turns out to be a reformed criminal, he refuses to take, uh, out of pride, he refuses to take any more money. Pretty much everything, as most uh, Dickens novels, pretty much everything ends up turning to custard. Uh, but you see, the point is that there were these great expectations for Pip uh, that he might live a life worthy of the generosity and the kindness that he had been shown by this man. But he fails to live up to them. He fails to, uh, to do that, at least at first. And in the same way, as Christians, we're called to live a life worthy of the gospel. Like, for Pip, God has been generous to us. God is our generous benefactor, He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We can't make uh, it to God on our own. God is uh, the one who gives us the gift of life and forgiveness, the free gift of forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ. And God, having given that to us, calls us to live lives worthy of that. Great expectations there are for those uh, who are in Christ Jesus. Last week we looked at partnership in the gospel, how sharing with others in the grace of uh, Christ shapes our lives. Now at the end of chapter 1 and through chapter 2, we're called to live lives worthy of the gospel. 
Well, Paul says that, to the, that, that very thing to the uh, Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then in 2.12, he says something very similar. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Paul commands the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Living a life uh, worthy of the gospel is not a matter of indifference. It's absolutely crucial. So crucial, in fact, Paul says that we ought to do it with fear and trembling, with some degree of trepidation, some degree of concern about how we're going. Why is it so important Well, because, Paul says, a life lived worthy of the gospel is a sign. Verse 28, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. It is a sign of destruction, on the one hand, or salvation. A life lived worthy of the gospel is a sign to those whose lives are not worthy of the gospel. It's a sign of their impending destruction. And it's a sign to those who are worthy of, Uh, of the gospel, of their impending salvation. You see, the gospel doesn't leave us unchanged. So a life unworthy of the gospel is a sign that we've never really understood the gospel, that we've never really embraced Christ, who is at the heart of the gospel. While a life that has been changed and transformed by the gospel is a sign that we really have come to know Christ, that Christ really is at work in our lives. There's lots of countries around the world that claim to be democracies, but their actions and the way that they run their political system denies that. There are lots of people who claim to be awesome at something or other, uh, and yet their mediocrity belies that truth. In the same way, there are lots of people who say, I'm a Christian, but whose lives deny the reality of that. So as we think through this morning what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, please ask this question. Is your life signifying that you belong to God or that you don't belong to God? Is your life worthy of the gospel or is your life unworthy of the gospel? Please, as we think through what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, ask yourself that question. Is your life worthy of the gospel or is it not? So, if we've received uh, God's free gift of grace, we ought to live lives worthy of the gospel. But that leaves us, I think, with two questions. The first is, how do you do that? Sort of, in what way do you do that? And then second of all, what does that look like? What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? So, first then, how do you live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, Paul says, first of all, you do it together. Look at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Paul calls the Philippians to contend, to stand firm, uh, not as individuals, not as kind of solitary figures on the turbulent sea of life, but to contend as one man for the faith. It's not, in other words, the Christian life is not you and Jesus against the world, but it's you and Jesus 
and the body of Jesus, the church, working together to hold fast to the gospel. So to contend for the gospel intentionally alone is not to contend at all. To stand firm alone is not to stand firm at all. Because the call to stand firm is to stand firm in one spirit as one man contending for the gospel. It's remarkable how often when people are struggling, the first inclination, the first thing that they do is to pull back, to pull back from other Christians. They drop off coming to church. Or they, they've been part of a growth group and they drop off coming to the growth group. We think, we believe the lie that we need space, we need to fight through things on our own. We say to ourselves, no one understands me, no one knows what I'm going through. And so we pull back. But we pull back from the very people who are able to help us. And sometimes you think, well, it doesn't feel like anyone's helping me. But the influence and the contribution that people make to our lives is sometimes so subtle, so unseen, that we, we easily overlook it. You see, you need us. Look around. All the people here, you need them. And we need you. How do we live a life worthy of the gospel? We do it together. Second, our life worthy of the gospel flows from our experience of the gospel. So chapter 2, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then Paul goes on to say, if you have those things, then live a life worthy of the gospel. If you've experienced the gospel, that should flow out into your life. If we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any encouragement and consolation from being forgiven in Christ, righteous and holy in Christ, renewed in Christ, being transformed in Christ, if that gives you any encouragement and consolation, then that should shape your life and our hopes and our desires and our contentment. If we have any comfort from His love, from God's love, His love which has poured out while we were still sinners... His costly love, which sent His one and only Son to die for us, His enemies. His love, which chose us in Him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. If we have any comfort from His love, then that same costly, generous, warm love should flow out of our lives in the way that we love God and the way that we love others. If we have any fellowship with the Spirit, communion with the one and only God... The Spirit who cries out with our spirit, Abba, Father. The Spirit who instills in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. If we have any fellowship with the Spirit, then the life of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit should flow out of our lives. If we have any tenderness and compassion, not our own tenderness and compassion, but the tenderness and compassion of God if we have experienced the mercy of God and the love of God, the gentleness of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God, then that should shape our lives. It will, it will just come bubbling up out of our lives. Our lives will be lives of tenderness and compassion and mercy and patience and forbearance and kindness. 
So it's not that we have to make ourselves uh, worthy by doing these things. It's not that we earn God's favour by doing these things. We make God like us. No, rather it's only if we've received these things, received the comfort of God, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, the tenderness and compassion of God. It's only if we've received those things that they can flow out of our lives and shape our lives. How do we live lives worthy of the gospel? It's by dwelling more and more deeply in what God has already done, in what God has done in Jesus and is doing in Jesus through his spirit. Live in that. Dwell on that. Delight in that. Enjoy that. Meditate on that. Reflect on that. It's the praise of God that fuels our lives worthy of the gospel. Why do we sing songs every week? It's to fuel our hearts again with the truths of the gospel so that that flows out. We remember, that's right, I've, I've received the tenderness and the love of God, haven't I? Isn't that right? And that, that shapes the way that we live uh, and the things that we do. So how do we live a life worthy of the gospel? We live a life worthy of the gospel together. Uh, we live a life worthy of the gospel as our experience of the gospel flows out uh, in our lives. Third, we live a life worthy of the gospel as we work and as God works in us. Paul says in 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. New life in Christ is a gift, but that doesn't mean that we just uh, sit on our hands and hope that God will do everything. God calls us to work at the same time as He is working. It's not that we do 50% and then we make, uh, and then God sort of makes up the rest, the other 50%. But we work 100% and God works 100% as well. How those two things go together is a, you know, is a bit hard for our minds to, you know, for us to get our heads around. But I think there's two errors that we can easily fall into uh, if we don't hold both of those truths at the same time. We need to kind of hang on to both of them. The first error is that we don't do anything. So we say to ourselves, well, I don't have to do anything because God's doing it. So we just sit back and go, well, I'll just wait for God to do something. No. Paul says... God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. The other error, the second error, is to do everything on our own without God. So we put our heads down and we just work. Let's go, I've got to get this done. I've, I've, I've got to be holy. I've got to be righteous. And, and we never pray. We never, we never rely on God. We never fuel our hearts with the grace of the gospel. The right response is to work, but at the same time to pray, to, to pray, God, you've called me to be holy and I know that that's beyond my power. But I'm doing everything that I can. And I trust that you're working in me and through me by the power of your spirit to make me like Jesus. We work, we pray, we trust God. 
How do we live a life worthy of the gospel? We work as God works in us. So God calls us to live a life uh, worthy of the gospel that we've received. He calls us to do that together by being anchored in the gospel, by working as he works. But what does a life worthy of the gospel involve? Uh, There's a few things that Paul highlights in this passage about what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. He doesn't say everything, but what he says, I think, is a helpful starting point uh, for for what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. So he says, first of all, that a life worthy of the gospel is a life of unity. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He's basically saying the same thing four times, uh, one mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose. You could write a song about that um, and maybe earn a lot of money. But um, that doesn't mean that we all have to think exactly the same thoughts at the same time. Uh, the idea is to be united. So the idea is to say, well, look, you and I disagree on this. We have different ideas maybe about the best way to proceed, but we're still going to stick together. We're not going to let that uh, ruin the, the kind of the unity that we have, the fellowship that we have. It's like uh, in a marriage. You can't end a marriage every time you have a difference of opinion. Uh, you've committed to being together, to being united as long as we both shall live. So you have to work through disagreements and often that means that one person has to say, well, look, you know what? We, actually, we do disagree on this, but our unity is more important, so we'll, we'll do it that way. You need to sacrifice your own desires to do what's best for the marriage. And the same is true in churches. We need to sacrifice something of ourselves in order to be united. How many churches have been destroyed by disunity? Over relatively small issues, where the flowers are on a Sunday morning. How many Christians have left one church uh, to go to another because of disunity? How many relationships within churches have been damaged by disunity? If you're struggling to get along with someone and you're struggling to be united with someone, whether in fact it's a a Christian in this church or a Christian in in another church, you should go to that person and, and sort that out and say, look, let's talk this through. Let's see what we can do about this. But actually unity means more than just the absence of disunity. There's a positive side to unity as well. Again, imagine that there's a marriage, a marriage where there's no bitter arguments, there's no fights, there's no disagreements, but the reason is because the couple never does anything together. They each just do their own thing. They just go their own direction the whole time. There's no disunity, but there's certainly no unity either, right? There's no one mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose. You see, in our ruggedly individualistic age, I think the great danger for us as Christians and as churches is not disunity in the form of out-and-out arguments. I think the great danger is lack of unity in the sense of not actually really doing anything together. 
not having one mind, one spirit, one purpose. It's pretty par for the course in, in uh, modern Christian life for people to only do what suits them. If you don't like it, you don't do it. If you don't like the church, you leave and you go somewhere else. There's no risk of disunity there in the sense of people coming to blows or, you know, kind of heated arguments because everybody goes their own way before there's a chance for that to happen. It's so easy, isn't it? That actually, God says, that's not a life worthy of the gospel. We can easily look at our lives and think, well, I'm not at odds with anybody but that's quite a different thing to being united with them in mind, love, spirit and purpose. So a life, of, uh, a life worthy of the gospel is a life of unity. Second, a life worthy of the gospel means being humble. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's command for uh, humility is connected to his command for unity. Uh, One commentator has written, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. Unity requires, as you've seen, self-sacrifice. It requires loving others more than we love ourselves. So the great way to destroy unity is selfish ambition and vain conceit. I want my way... If you don't give me my way, I'm, you can get lost. Instead, unity requires humility. It requires considering others better than yourself. It doesn't mean, that doesn't mean if you're a talented concert pianist that you have to consider a five-year-old plonking away on the piano as better than you. It's not talking about competence but it's talking about importance. It means that if you're a world-class concert pianist, you have to consider the needs uh, and, uh, and the, that, of that five-year-old hack as more important than, than your own needs. That person is more significant than you. Paul says in verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, uh, but also to the interests of of others. So instead of asking what suits me or even what suits our family, you should ask what suits that person? What do they need? What's good for you might be taking on a more senior position at work, but what's good for someone else, what's good for others, is perhaps for you to say, well, I'm going to pass it over and I'm going to keep the extra time that I have in order to, to serve. What's good for you might be to take a family holiday at every opportunity, every long weekend, every school holidays, whatever, every time, bang, off. But actually maybe what's good for others is sometimes to go, you know what, this time we're going to hang around because I know that lots of other people go away on a long weekend and it'd be great to see the church still full, it'd be great to people would still be available to serve in rosters and ministries. What's good for you might be to turn up to church late and leave as soon as it's finished. After all, there's so much on, isn't there? So many family things to get to. 
But what's good for others is perhaps for you to persevere through the awkwardness and to stay to encourage each other. Because of sin, it's instinctive for us to ask, how will this suit me? How will this benefit me? It's counterintuitive for us to ask, how will this serve others? How will this be for their good? A life worthy of the gospel is a life of unity. It's also a life of humility. Third, it's a life without grumbling. Verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. Uh, Grumbling and complaints really cause a church to catastrophically implode, but that sometimes is the result. More often than not, they slowly wear away at people's enthusiasm. They sap people's energy and they engender bitterness. People start off enthusiastic uh, and then over time that enthusiasm is worn down. There's a view, particularly prevalent I think, uh, in our age and our society that says that it's healthy for us to get things off our chest. So actually, if there's a problem, the best thing that we can do is grumble and complain about it. And to not grumble and complain damages their own personality, our own state of mind. But actually grumbling and complaining far uh, from causing relief actually, I think, increases our bitterness. And it simultaneously poisons the minds of other people. Challenged by uh, words like these in the Bible, I've been doing my own little experiment over the last six months. Uh, I've been trying to stop myself from grumbling. Uh, So when I think I could grumble about that, I I say, no, I'm not going to grumble about that. And I've been testing to see whether or not that makes me a more miserable person or a more contented person. And remarkably, though it's been a very poor experiment, I'm ashamed to say, remarkably, I've discovered that by not complaining, I've become much more pleasantly disposed to situations than to people. Who would have thought that God's prescription for our lives is wiser and more beneficial than the world's prescription for how we should live? Of course, there is a place for raising concerns, but in that case, we ought to follow the model that Jesus gave us, which is, if we have a concern about something, we should approach the person themselves, the person involved, and say, look, there's an issue here. If they don't listen, involve somebody else so that there's someone else to say whether you're crazy or the other person's crazy. Uh, and if they still don't listen, then involve, uh, involve others in the church as well. But a life of grumbling and arguing, says God, is unworthy of the gospel. Uh, a life worthy of the gospel is a life of unity, a life of humility. It's a life without grumbling. Fourth, it's a blameless and innocent life in the midst of a crooked world. Verse 15 so that you may become blameless and pure, says Paul, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour for nothing. A life worthy of the gospel is a life of immense contrast, shining as stars in a dark world, pure and blameless in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. It's a life of glory. It's also a very high call to be blameless and innocent. But it has to be understood in the light of Paul's prayer in chapter 1. You might remember that uh, from last week. Paul prays that we will be more and more already now what we will be on 
the day of Christ. He prays that the Philippians would be more and more blameless now as they will be completely when Jesus presents them before his Father on the last day. A life worthy of the gospel is not a life transformed in a few small ways, but a life transformed in every way. It's a life radically different from what we were. It's a life radically different from what we are by nature. Uh, Don Carson, in his little book on Philippians, Basics for Believers, writes sarcastically, I would like to buy three quids worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enhanced. There is no such gospel. A life worthy of the gospel aims for purity and blamelessness. A life worthy of the gospel is a life uh, of unity, a life of humility, a life without grumbling, uh, a blameless and innocent life in the midst of a crooked generation. Fifth, it's a life of sacrificial service and suffering for the gospel. Verse 17, Paul says, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Paul likens his faith and the Philippians' Uh, life of faith to sacrifices. The drink offering was the wine or the oil that would be poured over the sacrifice kind of at the end to finish it off, to complete it. And Paul is saying that his sacrifice of himself in the service of Christ is like that drink offering which finishes off the sacrifice uh, that the Philippians have given of their own lives. Paul, uh, this life of faith that Paul is living and the Philippians are living, uh, lived and that we are living, uh, is a life of faith which is a costly life. It's a life of costly sacrifice. For Paul, it meant imprisonment and maybe even death. And for the Philippians, it meant suffering. Paul has said earlier in, in uh, chapter 129... For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still had. They have been chosen not only to believe, but also to suffer. Suffering and faith go hand in glove. They're of a peace. The gospel costs us our life. Uh, it, it costs us our preferences. It costs us our deepest desires. It costs us our time and our money. It costs us our friends and family even. It may cost our freedom. 
And it's not possible to follow Jesus without suffering. You've been chosen not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Whosoever follows Jesus must take up their cross. And no cross means no crown. A life without sacrificial service and suffering is not a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. A life worthy of the gospel means striving for unity. Uh, it's a life of humility. It's a life without grumbling. It's a blameless and innocent life in the midst of a crooked world. It's a life of sacrificial service and suffering for the gospel. But most of all, a life worthy of the gospel is the life modelled and uh, pioneered by Jesus. Right at the centre of this chapter is the great hymn to Christ, which begins in verse 5. Your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where do we look to discover what a life worthy of the gospel is? We look to Jesus, says Paul, to the perfect example of, of unity. One with his Father and the Spirit. Jesus who makes all his people one, who, who brought down the dividing wall of hostility. We look to Jesus, the perfect example of humility, who though he was God, came to serve us, his creatures. He came to give his life as a ransom for our sins. We look to Jesus, who never grumbled, who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. We look to Jesus, who was pure and blameless in the midst of a crooked generation, like no one was before and no one has been since. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father on high. Do you want to know what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel? Then study Jesus, know Jesus, pour over the gospels, pour over the Old Testament, look at the Old Testament, how it predicted the coming of the Christ. Read the New Testament, the writings of the New Testament, where the, the, the apostles reflect on the meaning of the life of Christ. Pray to God that you would know Jesus and pray that the Holy Spirit would unite you with Jesus. You see, if we don't look to Jesus in living a life worthy of the gospel, then all we'll see is the high bar, blameless and pure. But if we look to Jesus, we'll see not only the, the perfection which God calls us to, but we'll also see the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. The two are held together in the one person. Blamelessness, righteousness, forgiveness and mercy. We look to Jesus because he not only models for us a life worthy of the gospel, but because his life and his death atones for our life. 
our lives which are often unworthy of the gospel. We look to Jesus because he not only shows us what it means to live for God, but because he has begun a good work in us and he will carry it on to completion. Well, is your life worthy of the gospel? Uh, If it isn't, then please confess that to God and trust in the finished work of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ and ask him to empower you by his spirit to live a life worthy of the gospel. But on the other hand, if you look at your life and you see the signs of new life in Jesus, of the beginnings of a life worthy of the gospel, then rejoice and and be glad and give thanks because it's a sign already now that you will be saved at the last day. And keep fixing your eyes on Jesus uh, and keep living a life worthy of the gospel and strive by looking to Jesus and fixing your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on his holiness and on his grace and trust in his mercy and forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have called us from before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. Thank you that you have called us uh, not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for him. And Lord, for those of us who have received your mercy, help us to live lives worthy of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are holy and blameless in him, that we are your children, reconciled to you through his death and being transformed more and more every day into his likeness. Father, help us to live lives which uh, flow out of the knowledge of the gospel. Help us to live lives of unity and humility, lives without grumbling, lives of sacrificial service, lives modelled on Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at your right hand, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Father, help us to trust in him and to fix our gaze on him today and for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.